Hello and welcome. I'm Joel Martin, the host of the Morning Bell podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by returning guest Dr. Livings. Earl Livings has published poetry and fiction in Australia and also Britain, Canada, the USA, and Germany. He's also read his work in many venues around Melbourne, the USA, England, Ireland, and Wales. Earl has a PhD in creative writing and taught professional writing and editing for 17 years. His writing focuses on nature, mythology, and the sacred. He is currently working on a Dark Ages novel and his next poetry collection. This podcast is structured in a slightly different way than usual, and I'll elaborate on that during the episode. Instead of covering a variety of topics, especially in the media section, we'll be looking specifically at Star Wars The Force Awakens. As to the main topic for the show, we're going to discuss The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro, and use it as a base to talk about literary writing within speculative settings. I specifically chose The Buried Giant as the base due to a very good article on Fantasy Faction, written by Nick Clark. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at the address mailbox at thepenofjoel.com. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. My name is Joel Martin, and we're at the Brunswick Street Bookstore. Guess who's returned, ladies and gentlemen? The conquering hero from... Where'd you go? Luke, Slovenia? Oh, uh, too far away, isn't it? You were but I'm back. Walking the Andes, <laughs> climbing the Alps. Journey to Middle Earth and back. New Zealand, you mean? New Zealand. Yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, New Zealand. <laughs> New Zealand, of course not. Middle Earth. <laughs> there you go. The proper Middle Earth. The, the real Middle Earth. The British right. Middle Earth. The British Middle Earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he did say he was, uh, the, when you look at the map, uh, yeah. the way he said it, it was uh, the, the Shire is virtually England. So. We had a great conversation on the last podcast um, where we were talking about the representation of how Middle Earth became New Zealand instead of like, you know, the hedges and the woods of England, which yes. they meant. But um, enough about last week's podcast. <laughs> Luke, you're here. Where have you been? Ah, uh, all around. There you go. All around, let's see. Been up to New Merca recently. That's probably not going to ring any bells with anyone listening. Um, let's see, what else have I done? Well, I also did a bit of blogging, looked yep. back into my writing a bit. Mm-hmm. So it's all been good to hear. All been good, but uh, a lot of work as well. So, I mean, it's all on the side. Yep. There you go. <laughs> well, do you have a convenient excuse for leaving me on the last podcast? Because now yes. is the time. Now is the time to, to tell you that, well, my shifts were put on till 7.45 in the evening. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I'm here this week is because they actually give us scheduled days off every second week. So. Now, that is too much of a reasonable explanation. <laughs> too uh, reasonable. Come on. I was, come on, Luke. I was like Russian mafia. Oh, I'm sorry. Like, yes, that's right. I was... Uh, no, aliens. Aliens. Come on. X-Files is on at the moment. Yeah, yeah you right. got to talk aliens. I thought it was in Middle Earth. Well, we were. Something about yeah, we've moved. Something. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, reasonable explanation aside, good to have you back. Um, our guest for today is a returning guest, an old face. Doesn't look that old. Actually, I realize <laughs> saying an old face is not a compliment these days. It doesn't look that old, come on. I didn't even mean it like that. Dr. Levings, welcome back. Thank you, Joel. Good Thank to you. have you. Thank you, Luke. So today's podcast is a little bit different in the way that we tend to ramble on in our podcast quite a bit, and that's sort of the charm of what we try and do. 
We try and get you into a writer's life, a writer's lifestyle. And writer's ramble. And writer's ramble. And we do that a lot. So that's honestly why these podcasts have been going the way it is, uh, or the way it has been. But in this particular podcast, what we decided to do, especially for returning guests, is to tackle difficult topics. Or topics that not so much are difficult, but take a bit longer to digest and explore. Explore. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so... You might miss some of the friendly banter, but I'm sure we'll have enough disagreements <laughs> in the actual topic. So, <laughs> uh, quick, quick uh, ra- uh, roundup of what you've been up to, Doctor Livings, since we last saw you. Anything exciting? Uh, I looked after a friend's house over Christmas up in Ballarat, in which I got to at least spend some time on my own mm-hmm. and do some do some work on my novel, the next the second draft of the novel, and I think I'm about. 2,000 words, maybe even less from the end of that draft. So that's what I've been doing the last uh, last month or so. Um, Perfect. And, uh, yeah, that's probably about it. Uh, some teaching, uh, some editing work, because writers mm-hmm. have to eat. That's right. uh, what? And, uh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, <laughs> you, know, you can't fade away. <laughs> you don't get to write then. That's true. You can, because then you probably become famous, right? Well, as long as you've got something out there that oh. you can be famous for. Yeah. Well, you've got all your poetry out there. and you know. True, true, yes. But, uh, yeah. but then you have to go out in a big way. You know, oh, that's, that's right. The Robert E. Howard way. It's actually quite yeah, sad. Come, that's, yeah, it is Wow, sad. I just like yeah. really put down the mood right now. Yeah, you just did. <laughs> How come every time I'm on, well, this is the second time, you know, we, we, we somehow get around to Robert E. Howard. <laughs> Just because you and I both, That's both true. love his work. There you go. <laughs> well, we'll make it a trend. That's for sure. I, if some, if a viewer wants to tally up the amount of times I've mentioned any of Robert E. Howard's works, I think it'll be a lot. Yep. So, okay. Let's move swiftly on from that one. <laughs> uh, to what we've been watching. And instead of doing what we usually do, and that is to just ramble on about things that nobody else has seen on the, on the floor, um, basically what we're talking about is a particular film. And, yes, I know, it's Star Wars, but trust me, we'll get over it and until next year, obviously. You obviously mean The Force Awakens, <laughs> not just well, Star I su- Wars. I suppose we're talking about The Force Awakens and... The original. And the original, yes. right? So, and the prequels, which didn't exist. But, <laughs> yeah. let's talk Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Uh, it came out in December, and I watched it. I will bring up my comments soon, <laughs> but uh, my first sentence, I suppose, to get this kick-started is to say that I think The Force Awakens is an incredibly safe commercial film that was made to play on the nostalgia of Star Wars fans. Okay, Luke, not Extended Universe fans. <laughs> I know, sad face. But the fans keep of the breathing, films... Keep breathing. That's right, keep breathing. <laughs> fans of the films and not try anything new, but this nostalgia in and of itself is enough to carry the film into one of the highest grossing films of all time. $2 billion worth. One of the most well-reviewed films uh, in the last couple of years, definitely. And yeah, I think it's an incredibly safe commercial film and it did what the director and definitely the producers and Walt Disney wanted it to. So those are my thoughts in its entirety. You've almost 
killed the conversation before it. it Moving on off. to the other topic. <laughs> so by the way, we also no. read a book. Um, yeah, I would agree with you in large measure um, because, as anybody who's read the reviews or seen the film, there there are lots of similarities between the uh, not just the plot points or characters. Uh, where they originate, um, but even shots you know, they're, 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 that uh, they use um, or Abrams uses. Uh, I, when I came, I, I saw it with a, a group of people, uh, family up, up, up in Ballarat actually, and um, when I came out of it, my sense of it was, a, yes, it's great to see a new Star Wars mm-hmm. film. I mean, yeah, we've waited a long time since... Episode six, in reality. Um, but um, I was trying to put myself in the mind of, say, a six-year-old. You know, if you saw the you know, the first film in 1977 as a young, you know, as a six, seven-year-old, uh, yeah, you were blown away. You know, and maybe six or seven-year-olds who haven't seen, say, any of the TV shows, the uh, um, Clone Wars and such maybe they will have that same sort of excitement. And maybe there was some, um, what's the word, um, uh, emphasis put that way because they wanted to recapture that same excitement. Uh, but for the adult reviewers, yeah, we've seen, been there, done that. Uh, mm. You talked about it being safe. Um, yeah, it was in that sense. I mean, they, you know, they, they updated it. You've got, you know, you've got, People of colour, you've, you've got gender changes um, in the main hero. Um, so, you know, they are, I suppose, uh, introducing some new elements. Um, but uh, but in the end, yeah, I was disappointed because I wanted something original, which the first film was yep. original. Um, this was, as you said, safe. Mm. A reboot, essentially. Well, I'll go to Luke for a second, and before I do, I want to read you a review that Luke, um, well, I'm not going to read the entire review because that's going to take a while, while. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just going to read uh, the last line, and this is this is Luke's review. So he says, George Lucas, please, ellipses, can't you take your work of art back? I adored Star Wars. Now, Luke, I have to say, that feels like nostalgia. Yes. And only nostalgia. No. <laughs> Explain. No, I've been into the Star Wars world since, well, pretty much the, f- what was it? It was about the third one came out when I watched them all. So I was about four, five, six when I started watching them. And so I've gotten into the whole world and the extended universe. I know I've gone on about this in another topic. But um, for me, the film, it, it had, I know, as you said, it was a very safe film. And of course, that's, all the producers wanted all they wanted was the money mm. but um i still feel like as someone who actually enjoyed the episodes one two and three as mediocre as some parts of them were uh, i just uh, i just felt it was lacking in pretty much everything that star wars is supposed to be um i can go into many things like uh, i had it in my uh, review as well but uh, one thing, I mean, you've already brought up a couple of them, both of you. Well, one of them was um, the heresies that they've pulled in. Like, well, I, I'd call them heresies anyways, is that um, 
they've actually pulled ideas that Lucas originally had and they've changed them. So like Starkiller used to be the idea for a name for Anakin and now they've called the Death Star 3 Starkiller Base. <laughs> yeah. So they're changing something completely, even though it existed already in, in lore, in history, in old notes, etc., etc. And for no reason. They've had Death Star 1, 2, maybe even 3, and then a 4th, really. And they all do the exact same thing. So <laughs> there's no real reason to, to bring that kind of heresy in when it's not, it's not necessary. Um, Force Awakens didn't make sense to me either. The title, you Because mean. Yeah. they've already had the Force for a very long time, of course. The Force Reawakens. That would be something, but it wasn't. It was the Force Awakens. Um... I did enjoy the cinematography to a point. A lot of it was pretty so-so. Landscapes were fantastic. Especially I with really the ships. I really enjoyed the... St- yeah, the, dead, the, the Star the Destroyers scene, yes. were beautiful. Yeah, same, that was one of the best was... things I've ever seen in any Star Wars yeah, film. Yeah, I agree. Apart from the opening scene of Episode 2, which was all space battles and stuff. That was beautiful too. Um, so, it had its ups and its downs. I think one of the hardest things for me to get was how insanely quickly they've just given these force abilities to someone <laughs> because it always took years and years for anyone in any film to pick it up yeah even Luke Skywalker he's like an adult I mean he gets he takes ages just to be able to move something and like he's there's been, a difference that's right there was a difficulty yes. it's taken him yes. years of training and practice with Obi-Wan and then with um, Yoda and everything before he can actually do anything well <laughs> It wasn't years. Luke Skywalker did fly a X-wing through, like, you know, he flew a it needle. Well, yes, but Anakin within also the first had, yeah. week of getting the Force. So no, no, he flew it, but he was flying way before he got. Into oh no, he, he was flying, so. but he didn't use his nav computer. He switched it off, and he used the Force. Use yeah. the Force, Luke. It's true, <laughs> but he wasn't engaged in a full lightsaber battle with a Sith Lord. So I yeah. mean, he did fly through a ship. That's pretty oh. intense. It's like killing womp rats. No, actually, it really isn't. That's such a weird line, by the way. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I I had troubles with. Uh, you know, she. Uh, I mean, we haven't even said spoilers for everybody that hasn't oh. actually seen this film. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, so, uh, but if you didn't um, initially turn off as soon as we said Star Wars, oh, well, then it's your own right. fault, really. Um, but yes, uh, she. What I found of problematic was she's being tortured she somehow can resist his mm. force interrogation and that gives her the idea oh, i must have the force and then oh i'll tell that guard who we all know is a easter egg was was um uh james bond in uh, in that suit Bond himself uh, bond himself um get him after two or three times to do what i want Yes, I mean that's that's what you're saying. Is yeah, that she she managed to weeks. to not only be aware that she's yep. got the force, but be able to use it. Yes, um, I agree. And um, and then you had the, the the lightsaber battles at the end. First of all, with um, uh, Finn, who seems to be able to wield a lightsaber quite <laughs> yeah quite well, and he hasn't even got the force, or has he? Well, has the, he? the the, the yeah. hand wavy. Um, lawyer in me says that apparently, this is what they say anyway, is that the order, whatever they are, right, is designed to fight Luke Skywalker, like, you know, the stormtrooper with the 
with that know, that thing that that yeah. thing that's become an internet meme. Yeah, um, the traitor. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, well, there was that yeah, battle that's earlier. That's like some weird thing you hold like this. That's yeah, yeah, but it's like a, a bladed art. weapon, right? Yeah. It's like they know how to. I fight I think they introduced that to sort of show that that's that. Um, um, stormtroopers have some sort of skills. That's right. You know, They're not therefore he mu- by implication <laughs> he must have it. Yes. And therefore he was able to use the lightsaber well against um, against a Sith Lord. I mean, he did get. Well, he's not a Sith Lord. He's, he's not. He's, a, he's, he's an apprentice. He's, 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 well, I don't even know whether he's a Sith at all. Yeah, you know? we don't know who Snook not. really is. Um, but I mean, obviously that's why they wounded the the, the bad guy, and he was in an emotional wreck at that fight yeah. as well. Or was of. he? He just he just. He had just killed his father. He had he had actually made a step to the dark side, if you like. He had committed himself. He wouldn't be an emotional wreck. He was yeah. wounded. You know why would he be an emotional wreck when he'd already made a decision? Mm-hmm. Unless he's unless they're trying to say he's now he's unless, regretting it. Yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, and and he's still got a bit of light in him. Oh, he can get it that out of you. Make him, you know, not fight someone who's trying to kill him. Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the wound was supposed sense, to be yeah. obviously the thing that would affect him enough that he mm-hmm. could be, uh, um, he, he could, he, he he wouldn't be fighting at his best, um, but he can defeat mm. Finn. But and then again, suddenly she's never used a lightsaber in her life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's not a stormtrooper. She's had no training. That's right. She's had she's got that stick thing that she uses and during the film. So she's got yeah she knows how to wield something like some sort of pole arm. Pole arm. It's not the same as a lightsaber. Yeah, no. a sword basically. You know, um, and then when she realizes again, oh, I've got the force. Oh, I've forgotten <laughs> all about that. Oh, now and then I you know I, I tap into it and I beat him. Now hands down. Now the thing that I've seen on the internet quite a bit is that um, when people criticize uh, Ray's you know apparent. Super, superwoman, superwoman. superwoman ab- yeah. abilities. Um, they said, like, oh, you know, it's it's there's a bit of sexism in that. And I have to say, I find that argument a little hard because I don't think there is. No, I think I would have the exact same problem if it was a male character. Yeah, well, that, we do because Finn, right. Finn, yeah, looks like Finn. He's got it. And yeah. and the issue isn't that we don't want Ray to be powerful. She could have tons of midi chlorians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> But the but the idea is you never establish how like it's fine if you say she's this powerful, but there has to be a story reason. There has Mm. to be shown somewhere. I don't care if you write a book later and explain it. I wanted to see it in that film, yeah, Mm. and it wasn't explained exactly like you both said. It Mm. it was just like hand wave. Yes, she can do all these things, but we were never given a good reason how she could just instinctively know to you know mind control people. Well, I mean. The other thing that annoyed me about about her, and this, again, it's not a sexist comment or anything, she f- became a, 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 an amazing flyer. She's never oh, flown yeah. anything that we are aware of. She's like yeah. a speeder and that's it. She may have used a speeder and that's, well, yeah, that's exactly. Not, that's only, uh, what do you call it, XY. Yeah, it's only two-dimensional. Yeah. Mm. It's not three-dimensional. But she can throw the Millennium Falcon around and like like, like Han, Han Solo. And Han Solo's like, you want to be my co-pilot? Yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking again, yeah, Superwoman. Just yeah. Uh, it's it's all it's all almost a Mary Sue. Yeah. Um, if there was again, as you say, if there was an explanation, fine. You know, yes. she, uh, yeah, they they, they tried to uh, uh, introduce it of uh, that she at least is aware of pilots, X-wing pilots, and that because of the. The helmet that she has on early on when she has a meal, after she had a meal, and the doll that she's made. Mm. So she's mm. fascinated by it. 
but we're not. Mean a, she's done it. Doesn't mean that's right. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't mean she's done it. Um, and then suddenly she's an expert. Uh, There's a lot of assumption in the film. That yeah, you're like, yeah. of course she can do these things. Or yeah. of course Finn can do these things. Like, a character that I think was good was Poe. He's not much of a character. We don't see much of him, mm. which is unfortunate. Because I really liked his character. Yeah. But he's got one thing going for him. He's Obviously. a very good pilot. Yeah. And guess what he does in the film? He's a very, very good, good pilot. pilot. Yeah. He makes sense. Yeah. Probably one of the few characters in that film that yeah. does make sense. Exactly. That's yeah. Right. And and that's what Star Wars does. You don't have to have complex characters. I don't think they've ever had what we consider like an incredibly complex character. Boba Fett is just a bounty hunter. He's a yeah. bounty hunter who doesn't do anything apart from get eaten. <laughs> Let's face it. All right? And and people go mad over him, but it's the idea that we've built a legend around a character not because that character had anything going for it. Yeah. Apart from a jetpack and a cool helmet. <laughs> exactly. It's apparently all you need. Um so, so that's the idea, and that's my problem with mm. those characters. Mm. But any final uh, thoughts on... Um... I had two more. One Go more. One of the other things I picked up, and I do have that in the review as well, is recycled lines. Yep. Recycled lines. Instead of, instead <laughs> of using things from Star Wars, yep. they started pulling things from other Hollywood films. Mm. Like, they've got all these lines from Die Hard and these lines from... You know, all the very cliche lines from action films mm. instead mm. of Star Wars. And Lucas never put those in. No. I've never seen those until this film. Just very, very recycled lines. They're in every single film that releases now. And that really annoyed me because <laughs> I'm sick of hearing those lines. That's why I don't watch a lot of the new films. Mm. And just suddenly entered the Star Wars universe. Well, so, what do you mean? Are those like just like macho sayings or whatever? Just like, macho. What well, mean? partially the macho sayings, partially like every sort of. You Any know, example you can think of? Ah, uh, I wish yeah, I could. I've, yeah. I've got them on the. I think I've got on them the review. review okay, I think I'll have, to, I'll have to have I a read of it. I think I got a couple in the review. But See, Luke is doing what good writers do, and that is direct you to the direct you to my <laughs> site. That's thesoulshard.com. But there was one final comment. I have to make this last because it does come up against my namesake. So Luke Skywalker was a big Easter egg hunt. Yeah. Everybody in the galaxy is doing this Easter egg hunt to find this guy who in every other film he's been in has suddenly turned up to save his friends at the end. Yep. Every single one of the, uh, what am I doing, New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, he's always there trying to get his friends out of his mess. And here, he's nowhere. He's, he's missing the whole time. And it's just a big map hunt. And then finally, they, you, you see him at the end and like, okay, they found him. Mm. And it didn't make enough sense to me. Like, why was this guy not going to protect anyone in the galaxy? I don't know. Maybe it's an event that happened before. It doesn't really make any sense anyway. Because he still well, uh, cut himself off from protecting everyone, even though the Empire still exists. Yeah, I, well, it's obviously that it has to do with this, you know, <laughs> with the betrayal by, yeah. by his Kylo best, men's, best friend's son. Um, and uh, yeah, whether whether you would call it the equivalent of a forced depression or whatever, yeah. <laughs> he's uh, he, he shut it, or maybe he shunted himself away to um, to try and figure it all out and or maybe, purify himself yeah, to maybe. to use the force so he doesn't make that mistake right. again. But he's already seen how Yoda has done that, and it was killing Yoda that he'd done that. But himself, well, that might he could have gone off and fought the Empire by himself or something. But <laughs> instead, he's secluded himself. And left traces of maps around the entire universe yeah. for people. That to was pick a bit up. weird. Yeah. 
I, R2D2 just you know, <laughs> is asleep until he shows up. Until he it needs a lot to of show up. So, so a great, on. great um, YouTube where somebody just said, "Why don't you try reset R2D to like press the reset?" Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Try. Yeah. Have the, you turned it on, <laughs> off, and on <laughs> the power supply? <laughs> the power supply. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's my um, and 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 I thought and I think there was also some mis you know, decisions. I think that were just wrong. I mean, we have the the yeah. The deaths, yeah, you know, we have to have a death of a major mentor type character. Okay. Um, so the others, the rest, fly back to where the where the resistance is. <laughs> and who does Leia yep. hug? Yep. This person that she's only just met, whereas Chewie has lost his best mate. Stands there. And he's just standing there. You know, I mean, yeah, he's mm. the one. Yep. Who would be hurting? But that's like Leia doesn't even give him a look, and I'm thinking that's just emotionally wrong. Mm. Yep. What? Um, yeah. That's There's that no was... references and no no kind of connection. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and then it's he wrong. just wanders off with all the others as they say, "Say, yeah, isn't it great?" But yeah, you know, but you know, the, you're back. Yeah, and it, but, uh... Chewie never, you know, hugged out when uh, like he gave a few shots, and that's it. I almost thought I would have been satisfied if Chewie died in that scene. Like, he just was like, well, I'm just going to try and kill this guy. in for it, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and die, and I'd be satisfied with that. Yeah. And then at the end, he just, like, flies off with Ray, and he's just like, okay, well. Yeah, that's right. New yeah. co-pilot. No, I mean, we don't, uh, in one sense, you know, when we're not watching these sorts of films for deep emotional. Of course. Um, <laughs> but just uh, basic, but you know. But even basic just emotional basic storytelling. things. We're should... not asking for, you know, the next Dune or whatever, yeah. right? We, well, I was we, hang on, we haven't Star had it. Actually, good new, that's good a good point. Tune. <laughs> I'm referring to the novel. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we just want a good, an average film. <laughs> and mm. as, as a person who is not incredibly connected to Star Wars, I could still see the problems in a film mm. like this. And maybe that's why. Maybe I could see the problems because I'm not connected. Yeah. But apparently, both you and Luke you know, had the same problems. I will say one thing before we move swiftly on, and that is... Uh, there was, there's a, there's a very good uh, image on the internet where somebody puts the picture of uh, Luke Skywalker when Ray looks at him, and she holds out the lightsaber. And under the text, they put, uh, the, "There was a hand. Do you have the hand too?" <laughs> 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 and it was just very good. I was like, "Yep, that's pretty funny." Um, but there's a really, and this is the bit where it got a bit much for me in the film. I understand the idea that J.J. Abrams was using the same lines out of his old, like the old original Star Wars films. Mm. I get that. I know why he's doing that. Again, very uh, nostalgic reasons. But there was just this one scene where he seemed to acknowledge the reason where um, Han Solo, when they were looking at, well, the Death Star, point three or whatever. Yeah. um, When he basically says, uh, oh, it's just like a Death Star. Yeah, and it, and it felt to me like J.J. Abrams just like popped into the film, turned around to the audience, was like, just like <laughs> winking at them. It, it was gratuitous, and yeah. I was like, that's just that's a bit much yeah. for me. Yeah. Anyway, okay. unfortunately for the people we who did like going. the film, there is no proponent for it on this show. <laughs> oh look, yeah, as can be said about a lot of films, yeah, a good, a, yeah, a good, good it's romp, pop, yeah. yeah. But um, if you're expecting something creative, something original. Um, it wasn't there, and then maybe, but maybe the second film will be different. Yeah, and you know? and maybe the the spin offs will be even more different. And I think mm-hmm. that's the hope for a lot of people that like 
the non-Jedi one, such as the Rogue One, mm. with a very interesting-looking cast, <laughs> seems to be where I'm putting my hopes of where the film might change. Yeah. It might be different, go a weird route. And I think mm. that's what they need right now. Yeah. But it's dangerous because people don't want a prequel disaster. They don't want, like... <laughs> but I honestly think, just try. You yeah, know? that's right. But, I mean, it, as you said, right at the start of this, you know, producers want just uh, you know, money for the uh, you know, reward for their bucks. You know, that's and, right. uh, and the bigger the and they got it, the better. And they got some, it. Some yeah. prequel films have gone really well, though. A lot of the um, Clone Wars cartoons have actually been decent mm. for Star Wars story. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen them, so I yeah. can't, yeah. can't say. But, um, um, oh, I did remember a quote. Oh, yeah. You've got Raptors on board. That's every single Jurassic Park film. That's right. Raptors. Oh, raptors. You got Raptors in here. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, you're right. Yeah. Every I didn't think film. about that. I didn't either. There's four Jurassic pick. Parks now. Was it five? Four or five? Four. Four. And they've five. all got that line. <laughs> four, yeah. And it was this crazy hunting beast. Yeah. <laughs> that was a pretty weird scene in and yeah. of itself, the whole bunny. Anyway. Okay. Yes. Anyways, we're done with on. the films, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> and we're moving on to the major point of this discussion it might go on for a little bit longer but there's a reason to it i was having a conversation with someone where they were saying well if it's an emerging writers podcast why are you talking about advanced you know issues and topics within the writing and i and i think that's a very good point but at the same time think of the podcast as touching all the bases we may bring in writers who are emerging and those writers you know that's where you go for the information and that's why if you're just starting out and you want some information, we have plenty of those episodes. And also, for people who are established or just want to hear different points of view, we've also got those episodes. And think of this one like that. So well, what I can say is towards that, I know yep. you just brought it up. So even emerging writers are still reading books and yep. watching films that have still got advanced ideas in them. Mm. That's right. And they're wondering if they can do that mm-hmm. and if it's viable. And if, I mean, for me, myself, I mean, I read something like... Like the buried giant, I think. Well, what kind of things can I use from that? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so exactly. th- that sort of thing still still builds up for emerging writers as well, in my opinion. Mm. Well, good you point. just did. You gave away the topic, but uh, good <laughs> point. <laughs> what the topic? Oh, come on, what topic? No, you never the, mentioned that's, book that's that. not the topic. Uh, that is, that the topic. is very <laughs> true. Yeah, <laughs> topic. yeah, Star Wars. Um, so today's topic uh, is focused on the idea of uh, literary writing genre writing, but specifically literary writing within a setting which is generally written within a genre style. Did you get that? <laughs> Say that ten times or vice fast. versa. Oh, vice versa. Yes. That's right. <laughs> ten um, times fast. Ten times fast. Come on. <laughs> um, and to use an example for this, because it's an incredibly broad topic and we could go on for hours and I'm sure you don't want us to. So to focus our attention on a particular... Um, Example, we're using uh, The Berry Giant uh, by Kazuo Ishiguro. I hope I got that name pronounced just right. I think so. Um, and the idea is we're looking at the book, using it as a base, and we're going to talk about because, well, Kazuo is a literary writer mm. who's just ventured into fantasy, and that's got him a lot of attention, well, sort of mixed attention from both <laughs> sides of the fence be it on the genre fantasy side where they're like, well, this is just not fantasy and the literary side, uh, to a lesser extent anyway, who are saying that this doesn't feel as strong as his previous works. Mm. And I'm sure there are people who are saying, I don't know why he's writing literary in genre, but that's a silly argument, so we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) Um, So uh, 
there's a little um, there's a little intro I'd, I'd give people who who don't know much about um, Ishiguro's work, and that is he's a literary author. He's written a few books that have got him quite a lot of uh, acclaim, including a Man Booker um, Prize. And I thought, what better way to talk about lit- literary and genre than to reference one of our previous podcasts uh, with the guest Cassandra Longley, and we were talking about the ideas of literary fiction and genre fiction the divide where is it is it just taxonomy in the end and i asked her to provide us with something we could use for ishiguro as she has read him before so this is uh what uh cassandra has to say and i quote um as far as ishiguro's writing style goes as corny as it is it's hard to go past the quote on the cover of my copy of never let me go masterful how he slowly, subtly, drip-fed reveals an important information through the book, it was a real eye-opener for me as a writer. Even though I knew the premise beforehand, spoilers by the way, children raised in a home for organ harvesting, the realities of it simmered in the background, letting layers of emotional, interpersonal, societal, and existential tragedy build until the very end. Fun fact, I felt genuinely sad for the rest of the afternoon after finishing it. And it was by Cassandra. And from her example, and from countless reviews, people really liked the book. Um, not so much the film as it ch- changed the emphasis, but they loved the way he wrote. They loved the concepts and the allegories he was using. And we'll talk about allegory quite soon because <laughs> allegory is an issue in and of itself in this book. So what I decided to do was to get someone who is both literary and set stories within genre settings uh, Dr. Livings. I don't know why I'm introducing you again, but there you go. <laughs> and uh, Luke, obviously, is my co-host, so he had no choice to be here, but, you know, he's a fantasy he's writer. He's a fantasy guy. <laughs> That's <Yes>. right. <laughs> so we're basically going to talk about that topic. Um, first, we'll hear some basic thoughts of what you thought about the book, uh, both of you, and then we'll dig into the deeper topic at hand. Dr. Livings, going to start us off? Oh, yes. Okay. Um the I wanted to actually just as a, almost as a as a sidebar, but um, I don't know if I've if it's been mentioned before. But um, uh, there's a, a, a law called Sturgeon's Law. Um, Theodore Sturgeon was an American science fiction writer mm-hmm. in the 40s and 50s, and at a uh, World Science Fiction Convention in I think Philadelphia in 53. Uh, he was on a panel about genre writing in general. Um, and somebody in the audience said, uh, why is it that there's so much crud? Well, the word was crud. So yeah. This is an American, obviously American term, so we'd say crap. Why is there so much crap in science fiction? And he, you know, he, it was his term to an- turn to answer. He said something like, isn't that funny? When we look at romance fiction as a genre, we look at the best, Jane Austen. You know, we look at uh, all those sorts of books. When we look at, say, crime, we 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 point out Raymond Chandler as the as the epitome of that of that thing, and they're great books. Um, but when we talk about science fiction, you know, we 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 talk about the crap. He said, "Yeah, ninety ninety percent of science fiction is crap. Ninety percent of everything is crap." Mm-hmm. Um. Which leads into that sort of whole idea of, and, and I don't know whether your previous podcast actually dealt with this, is that literary genre 
really, I mean, they are, they're both genres, you know, science mm. fiction, fantasy, literary fiction. They're all genres. Yep. They have their conventions. They have their approaches. Um, and in reality, there's only two types of books, not literary and genre, but good and bad, crap or the top. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so in that sense, is The Buried Giant crap or good? I'm leaning towards, but it's probably a harsh word. I'm you leaning. shouldn't have said crap or good. So now yeah. you're kind of stuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm now stuck in that in, in that taxonomy. Um, I don't think it's good. Yeah. Um, there've been some very uh, enlightening uh, reviews of it, uh, and I just I, I read these reviews and things, but they're not tackling. They're not saying anything about the issues I have with the book. Hmm. Now, that might just be me. Um, I have troubles with point of view in the book. I have troubles with dialogue in the book. I have troubles with the authenticity of his of, of the world that he's created. Mm. Um, and I've, you know, I've read the book. I've enjoyed parts of it. And... Yeah, you know, but it's. Uh, I think as a couple of reviewers said, including Neil Gaiman, you, know, you can. It's a book you can respect but not love. Hmm. Um, and I think my overall problem with the book is, for me, um, a, a, a problem with suspension of disbelief. I couldn't keep. You know, well, uh, you know, suspension of disbelief in one sense is a wrong term because when you enter a book, and you enter it. And live with that book, you're not actually consciously suspending disbelief. You're actually already drawn into it. The writer has drawn you into it. Um, I don't see this as a book I, can, I was drawn into. I was constantly being almost shunted out of it. And that may be a, 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 the technique that he's using. That may be his approach. That may be part of his style, his vision for the book. Um, I didn't like the, the, the personal addresses by the author to the reader. That threw me out of the book. Uh, it made it a conscious work of art. There were, you know, Joel has mentioned the allegory elements of it. They were too obvious to me, ham-fisted mm. almost. Mm. Um, and so I was constantly grappling with trying to get back into the book and then being shunted out again. Mm. If that's his intention... You know, the, the author intention, um, then uh, then you have to start thinking about, well, why is he doing that? Uh, and that probably requires a 10,000-word essay mm. or something. Um, but for me, uh, I, couldn't, um, I couldn't stay in the book um, and enjoy it as an, ex- as an experience. I, I always felt like I was being... Uh, there's the, for an, and this is probably the difference between allegory and myth... I was being preached at, you know, in a, in a way, there was a message there. Mm. However subtly done, I felt you know there was a message being being conveyed, um, and I was reacting to that. Yep. Luke, Luke, I have to go in a lot of a, a similar way to that. Um, I did enjoy the fact that it was a little sort of a quaint tale of this two old people going on a journey mm, mm. and it did of course uh, come through as a very specific journey like in all the other sort of fantasy tropes and fantasy stories where they start off on a journey that they weren't really pushed into in this book but but um, 
uh, going off on a little journey all by themselves and then it gets thicker and thicker and thicker and then they get into there. Um, it becomes a full um, journey again. I keep saying that word, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> but um, Test. Maybe. Test, test. Yeah, yeah, tests and trials and yeah, the little uh, guardians along the way. Everything comes up and yet it still, it still didn't have enough of the the fantasy to it that I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to come as coming as a yep. fantasy author here. Um, when I started, I definitely was expecting fantasy. I looked into it and I was like, there's there's these people. They're living in a magical place which is full of these mists and things that keep changing everything. Everything's sort of bleared out in everybody's memories. It's definitely going to be a fantasy book. And it did have its fantasy element. It had, had its ogres and... Um, dragons, everything in there, but it was the language of the book wasn't fantasy, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It just didn't seem to it, it didn't it didn't flow for me as well as it could have. Part of that was punctuation. I'm a bit of a picky proofreader. Doesn't mean I'm a good one, but I <laughs> kept getting thrown out by sentences that were constructed the opposite way to what you expect. Some of that's very passive sentences, and in that, in a way, that's made the book very passive. That's probably what's helping to to take you take will take us in and out of the book. Mm, good point. Um, some of it's very active, of course, and that's they're very interesting, like little conversations between the two characters, or and later the more characters, but at the start especially, this is what I'm mostly focusing on. Um, and uh, let's see. Allegory was, uh, we've already mentioned that, it was probably the, one of the first things I picked up on. As soon as I, I got into this idea of having an adventure, I was like, I've read that before. Where was that? Hmm. Pilgrim's Progress. I thought, it, it's, it's that. And then I kept reading, I was like, okay, it's not that. But it felt so much like that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then instead of going into allegory, and instead of going into fantasy, instead of going into anything else, it sort of stuck at the boundaries of all the different areas where it could have been. And I still thought it was a quaint, quaint tale, quaint tale. That's that's where I'm going to go. <laughs> quaint, quaint tale of these two, these two old people. And obviously, um, it could have been so much more. But um, that's what I came out with. Yep. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, my my thoughts of the book are different <laughs> to both of yours, but I completely understand both your points and actually I agree with a lot of it there's one particular thing that um, there was an article on the New Yorker uh, by uh, James Wood and it, it, it's called The Uses of Oblivion it's a good article and I think you should anyone should read this at times it can fall into a bit of smarminess which the New Yorker seems to have plenty of <laughs> uh, but it had some really really good points and, and one was about allegory and I want to bring this up and that is uh, he says that Allegory's function is to point us toward another meaning. Mm. So the allegory is always anti-novelistic because it points away from its own story towards another story. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, curiously, and despite its reputation, allegory is not suggestive, it's literal. Yep, very much. Uh, and there's one final thing in the article which is quite well done. He says that never let me go is a miraculous novel because it is an allegory that points directly at us, at ordinary, obedient, unfree human life. 
The Berry Giant points everywhere but at us because its fictional setting is remote, generic, and pressureless, and because its allegory manages somehow to be at once too literal and too vague. A magic rare, but unwelcome. And it's, it's a good point he makes mm, mm. in the idea that in, 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 in Neil Gaiman's uh, review, he says that he struggles to compare things to allegories in the chance that it might not be, right? Yep, yeah. um, for me, I, I feel like it definitely was. Mm. And I think this is where the, the problem lies, not because it's fantasy, but because genre readers, well, fantasy, uh, genre fantasy readers will go into this book and they will not be impressed. It doesn't contain what they want out of their fantasy. Yep. And a literary reader, quote-unquote, uh, will go into this book and find it a little more ham-fisted than what he's done before. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an unusual uh, question because here's a writer that surely has done his research and has done all these things, and yet they're like trip-ups you mentioned mm-hmm. in the book. Names are a bit odd. Uh, there's a bit of inversion uh, with the choice of who's the bad guy in the story, and that's what uh, we were talking about uh, before the show. And these kinds of trip-ups, I can definitely see why it would hamper the enjoyment of the book. Uh, at the same time, and this is this is where my feeling comes in, there's a sense that Ishiguro enjoys this dream-like uh, world, uh, especially in this one. Um, and that the idea that I got from it, and he said this before, that he was thinking of another setting of this story. So it shows to me that the setting is just the device. It's just it's mm. just there. Mm. It's flavor. And he doesn't put a lot of effort into making the setting an integral part of the story. He's using it because it's helpful. How do you get a mist like that? Well, it's fantasy. So, of course, incorporate fantasy elements. Yep. I like the way that, um, in, in that case anyway, it's, uh, the dragon is, your expectations are subverted when eventually you get to the dragon and see this pathetic thing that you almost feel sorry for. And I really like that imagery. Uh, the dialogue is stilted in a, in a very odd sort of way. It's very formulaic, the pseudo-Arthurian, um, you know, classical speak. That's not something that I um, that I was bothered by, though. Uh, it, and none of these <laughs> things that I'm mentioning bothered me in the in the telling of the story, simply because I found it to be an engaging narrative, not for its plot's sake, but even though the allegory was literal and obvious and ham-fisted, it was an allegory that I hadn't seen done in a lot of books before or at least within the setting, and to me it worked. Mm. Okay, that, what did you think the allegory was? Well, it was the idea that... Uh, that's a really good point, because <laughs> there's, there's so many ways I guess you could read the allegory, but in the end that um, Axel and Beatrice, yes, I know they're unusual names to be using in this setting anyway, besides that, the idea is you're constantly shown this couple that is incredibly close, uh, incredibly tied, but you know it, the memory is blocking out everything. So how can they be close? How can they 
when they have no memory of why they were close. And then as you get towards the end of the story, you see all this unravel. You see the, the real history come out of their relationship and showing in that way that behind the happiness, behind uh, the humanity of everybody, there is this, this sorrow, this melancholy. And this melancholy, for me, was deliberate, deliberately represented in the style of narration, uh, in the choice of characters, how every character has some sort of sorrow uh, that is with them. Almost no characters untainted by this. And Axel and Beatrice seem to be the only ones that aren't. I thought you were actually going to say when you were describing their, their, how they can be so close yet not know why they are so close. Hmm. That's almost sort of saying there is a love there that is that over overrides anything else, even mm. the fact that they don't have a memory of why of, of what it is about each other yeah. they love. Now, I thought you were actually going to say that's the allegory yeah. that there exists. But this in fact, type it's of the love. opposite. I'm you saying, went yeah. the opposite way. Yeah. I'm thinking, oh, um, but you know, he he himself is. I mean, he talks about his, one of his themes is collective memory. Yep, mm. and this is obviously about collective memory being very obviously being yeah. disrupted. Mm. Um, but there was also somewhere I read, I think it might have been in his interview with, uh, with uh, or dialogue that he had with Neil Gaiman, where he said that he was actually interested in also in, in man's propensity towards um, ethnic cleansing type situations. Um, and so th- that, that to me that then, okay, well, he's talking therefore about the, the accepted idea that the Anglo-Saxons uh, wiped out uh, the Britons and, um, but in this one, in, in yeah. the in the sixth century, mm. um, but he's sort of inverted, he inverted it in a way. It. But it, but by the end of the movie, the Anglo-Saxons are going to rise up anyway and, and wipe and, and, yeah, and yeah. seek their revenge and stuff. Um, but if his allegory was a, was yeah, if that was one allegory that he was trying to point out, um, then I think he should have just written about one of those experiences in Yugoslavia or in Africa or something like that mm. or made it more obvious in this book. Mm. It was almost like, I liked what you said when he's, or, 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 no, I think you said it, Luke, he's skirting all these different genres. I agree, yeah. Um, it was almost like he gave himself that as an, as an exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, he's successful at it, but does it give it a, a yeah. substantial work? Mm. Um, and my thought, my thought is, well... Just because he's produced great work in the past doesn't necessarily mean that every book is going yep. to be as good. That's right. Maybe this is one of his failures, mm. if you want to use. It's not a failure, but one of his lesser, yeah, lesser books. Um, yeah, you know, his his ambitions um, were beyond his abilities, or mm. he didn't have he didn't clarify his ambitions. In, but he went ahead and wrote the book anyway. Yeah, I don't it's know. One of those cases where you, when you dip into too many of the genres you miss the chief strengths of each of those genres. Mm. And you get some of the qualities, but you're missing the punch. Or Which was Ursula Le Guin's yeah. comment when yeah. she said that you use, you know, when you use surface, surface elements, elements, you don't get the profound depths of, of, uh, of, of, the, um, of the genre. Mm. Uh, which is always, and to tie us back to our topic, this has always been my concern with literary writers mm. who pick up science fiction or fantasy tropes. Especially if they're not, a, they haven't been a reader of those things. They only are aware of the surface tropes, um, and uh, you know, the, you know Margaret Atwood, who's a fine writer, um, 
and uh, but you know she she's delved into it, but she also has been a reader of it. I remember uh, having a discussion, and this would be a plug for for somebody, um, the, the guy who runs uh, Slow Glass Books, and he we were discussing The Road, which is another literary book that used science fiction elements. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the post post apocalyptic sort of world. And I, when I when the road first came out, I thought, why would I bother reading this? Mm. I've read this in science fiction from the fifties onwards. <laughs> you know, this is this is literary writers catching up to the ideas of science fiction writers. <laughs> um, and I said this to 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 this to this uh, person, and he said, "Yeah, you're right, but it's well written." <laughs> um, yeah, and this is where the literary side of things yeah. come in. You know, it's, um, some some science it's fiction. How you write, write it? Yeah, it's how you write it. Yeah, so I mean, you know, the science fiction and fantasy have got their clunky prose and their clunky characterizations, and um, whereas literary writers, that's their main their main form, if you like. Mm-hmm. That's what they look for, hmm. um, and so you can well combine the two, meld the two, but you have to be aware of both. Yep. to be able to do it well. And what you're aiming to do with both of them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think, uh, going back to the idea of um, the way that he structured the story, the themes that he picked on, uh, because a lot of, I guess, literary writers are about uh, delving into a theme or delving into a topic and exploring it fully. Mm. And I completely agree with you on that. He should have stuck to the memory, because to me that was the strongest part of the um, fable, I suppose. And in many ways... I would have loved the book immensely if it was a tighter uh, narrative. Mm. Um, he meandered a lot in the mm. middle, especially that uh, Gawain's uh, reveries, and uh, I felt added nothing mm. to you. Would yeah, like you were saying, you're talking about this ethnic cleansing idea that to me just was there. Yeah. You know, like what did that have to do with the memory other than being a plot device mm. for why their memories were wiped? Yeah, exactly. Or rather, misted. Yeah. The light drizzling of rain of memory, as somebody <laughs> once commented, because characters seem to remember things when they need to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or you have one character who is strangely, it doesn't affect at all. Yeah. Well, he's magic immune. <laughs> magic immune. <laughs> <laughs> Too much iron. There Too much go. iron. <laughs> D&D trope, he put that he in. He must have had midichlorians or something. <laughs> Oh no, uh, not that again. Um, but yes, and I agree with that. And in going to the ideas of working within that, do you think that he got the characters right in a literary sense, like they were well written? Did or did you find that they were just another allegory? Um, Especially Beatrice. No, I thought the I thought Axel and Beatrice were were well, well written. Mm-hmm. I what. What I thought where he f- might have failed with them is I, I the last chapter I thought Axel's character changed. I didn't. Uh, I yeah. I just wouldn't you say though the memory was a reason for that change? No, no, not strong enough for it. No, no, no it wasn't. No, it wasn't strong enough for me. Um, Whiston was a yeah. He was an interesting character. Uh, yeah, I think they were all interesting characters. I, I was when you said the the middle wandered a bit. I still don't understand the whole the the, the, the episode in the monastery. Yeah, that just seemed to be. Was it there just to demonstrate Whiston's um, uh, uh, prowess? I don't know. Speaking of which, oh, I yeah. mean another thing that really annoyed me was, and 
yeah, it was uh, was the comment made that oh, yeah, this 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 Saxon warriors killed fifty Norsemen. And I'm thinking, mm, the Norse didn't invade England till the eighth century. I mean, they could have seven seven eighty nine is the first <laughs> landing of, and I'm thinking this is occurring in the sixth century. But it's his world; he's yeah. allowed to have whatever. He wants. But it was it was it was it was in two sentences. Yeah. But it was presented. As a as a as a way of trying to show how powerful or state how powerful it was, it was a tally. Yeah, and I thought it didn't. You know, it it, it was just interpolated yeah. into into the, into that, and it just didn't work. His his mix of historical fiction went into like alternative history. Yes, it was into fantasy, <laughs> into literary, a little bit of legend as well. well yeah, with King Arthur, it. I feel the combination didn't work, and mm. I all. What would the story have gained uh, with its grounding in a historical setting? It lost by not making use of anything within that setting. Exactly. Yeah. And that was unfortunate. But um, when we talk about literary writing specifically, and we talk about um, writers like. Margaret Atwood, you mentioned, mm-hmm. Ursula Le Guin, who also had a few things to say about this book as well. Not so much the book, but rather his comments. An on, apparent attitude that he yes. gave in an interview, yes. Um, that she later clarified in another... Um, she uh, had a little bit of trouble with accident. <laughs> <laughs> uh, blog post. But she's very right in saying that people are looking for feuds, and when they find a good blog post to stoke some flames, they'll do that and ignore yeah. the one which actually has the points in it. So... Mm. Um, but I, I think she did have good points when she was talking about surface elements and genre. Um, when you when you talk about that, what would you say is a perfect example of literary fiction um, using fantasy or science fiction? Uh, good question. Um, well, probably you know the handmaid, the Handmaid's Tale mm-hmm. is, is is one that's that's always uh, that's always touted, and I would agree with that. Um, I think the 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 interesting co-question of that mm. any genre what genre titles are very literary, yeah. Um, and that would take you, and that in some ways yeah. that would take you back to the new wave movement in the sixties when people like J. G. Ballard, um, uh, M. John Harrison, mm-hmm. people like those started writing, um, and they introduced literary fictional ideas and uh concern for the language yeah. um so uh you know it, it it goes both ways um mm-hmm. so it's um uh, yeah the road is obviously one that people are people are also uh, touting as a as a as a literary work that uses uh science fictional tropes mm-hmm. um post apocalyptic one yeah um there's a, so, several others that I know by reputation, but I can't quite remember yep. it because I haven't, just haven't read them. Um, Michael Chabon, Chabon, I think, is uh, is one is another writer who's who's, who's crossed crossed both of them or mm. overlapped them. Uh, so yeah, there are there are writers out there, but as I said before, I think you can only do that if you're aware of 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 the of, of both um, of the both genres as well. Um, it's you know, in in one sense, what we're talking about is mashups. Mm. Yeah, uh, and you can only do a mashup when you've got the the uh, conventions of both, or more than you know, more more than one, more than two um, 
uh, genres there if you if you've got them and you can you know, mash them complete the, together com- correctly. Yeah, uh, the Buried Giant isn't successful as a mashup in that sense for yep, me. For I me, agree. and I'll, it's always what it is. It's for me. I yeah, mean, uh, yeah. There are lots of uh, a number of reviews that seem to to praise the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, in the end, it's really it's it, it's our, it's our personal um, reaction to it and. You know, and it's, uh, as Luke was saying, it's what you bring to it. You yeah. know, if you're a fantasy reader, you you're get not going to get yeah. much out of it. The sword fights, are, they're not fantasy sword fights. No. Uh, I think they are fantasy fights in the sense that he used what he knows of samurai films yes. and, and Western films, which are fantasies in themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody who's done martial arts knows that you know, even those films aren't. Well, certainly it's a sword film. A lot of liberties taken. Uh, they're still mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, they're 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 mannered. Yep. There's a there's a, a style that that uh, they're, they're evoking, and he's evoked it in his yep. uh, sword fights. Um, but it wasn't a fantasy fight. No, it wasn't a fantasy yeah. fight. That's right. So fantasy readers would be disappointed. And I think mm-hmm. distinctions between genre, you know, as I mentioned at the start, it's it's very malleable. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a there's a very good. Um, article with David Mitchell, um, the author David Mitchell, and he says that it is convenient to have a science fiction or fantasy section. It's convenient uh, to have a mainstream literary fiction, but what these should be should just be guides. Mm. And I, I think that's true. Yeah. In the end, when you go into a bookstore and you see these sections, they're good marketing tools. Yeah. yeah. But that's what they are. Yeah, they are exactly. marketing tools. Um, publishers and uh, distributors and booksellers, they decide, you know, buying trends and Mm. and that's what we go into so i completely agree with what you said and especially the idea that a lot of genre books should be literary or quote unquote literary and Mm. and it seems to be that uh and i mentioned this quite cynically to you uh, a while ago that a genre book will only become literary when enough academics agree that it is so (laughs) um yeah well then we're getting back to canon formation yeah in that sense if if we're going into the idea of um genre becoming literary, then science fiction has got to be at the top of that. Because science yep. fiction is always about how people are responding to new things. And not just new things, but but new concepts and ideas, especially dystopian science yep. fiction. Mm. It's all about the human condition. Yep. And that's one of the biggest things of literary fiction, is focusing on humans and how they're changing yep. and reacting to things. Mm. So it's I, very curious when people are looking at science fiction and or rather from a literary point of view and putting, I mean, you're obviously talking about the 90% they've looked at. Yeah. When you well, that's it. That earlier, yeah. But it, again, it, there is still, there's still um, got a lot of those literary ideas. in it. Yeah, exactly. That's just being sideboarded. Yeah. And, and I, I completely agree. And it's a really good point you bring with the science fiction because both science fiction and fantasy deal with two different, I guess, psychological philosophical topics and the idea that fantasy about things we can't understand and our way of dealing with things we can't understand i didn't coin that that was everyone said that right Mm. and science fiction is uh of where we're going and our our condition or our fear and all the possibilities that it could it could manifest and these topics are literary topics Mm. very yeah. yeah and and they're incredibly intense and it's only as intense or deep as you make them and you write them. Well, it, it, it does go back to the 90% thing. You yep. know, are mm-hmm. we talking about uh, hack writers or are we talking about people who, who are writing seriously, whatever that means? <laughs> um, yeah, One of the reasons I stopped reading fantasy for a long time is because I thought most of it was young 
hero or very much lesser uh, heroine, heroine yeah. Um, yeah, from a from a nondescript background, rises up to kill the Dark Lord, you know. <laughs> Shannara Chronicles. <laughs> <clears throat> and I'm thinking, yeah, God, you know, it just it just became it became a formula, mm. um, and uh, but. Uh, there are there are instances in some ways where probably literary fiction can be seen as formulaic too, and people just um, you know they're not part of that ten percent; they're yep. part of the ninety percent, and they're drawn to that you know writing angst-ridden um, prose. You know, yep. um, that's right. I mean, I see it in poetry as well, which is a, a totally, you know, totally different. <laughs> uh, uh, and then, of course, you get speculative poetry, which is. Another, 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 <laughs> beast issue, of another beast of itself. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, with uh, horns and hel- and helmets. Mm-hmm. Ooh, nice alliteration there. Horns and helmets. That's right. Trademark that. <laughs> Trademark that. <laughs> well, I think that's a pretty good uh, wrapping point to that topic. Uh, any final comments, Luke? Not really. No. Not really. I think we covered I, it. I had one other comment. I don't know if you've really covered it much. It was the vagueness of the language. Now, I've I've only um, no no no. This is weird way of putting it. I just remember from several of the um, classes we had back in in Box Hill, where every time we put in a sentence that was the narrator saying something. First of all, the narrator says something, but then the narrator says something vague. It doesn't it doesn't quite have solidity. So like, um, the narrator's like the let's just go with an, with an Axel, say, Axel might have heard something. Mm. Or Axel put his hand to his head almost as if he was yes. Yeah, doing this. And <laughs> it just kept coming up. Yeah. Well, I think that was the stylistic thing. Yeah. If it was just a stylistic thing, that's okay. Yeah. But then, then I found it also in descriptions of the world. I just kept... Yeah. I kept... I want to know yeah. what it is. Yeah. What is, what is he, that he, thing? There, I, I noticed <laughs> it when I was finishing off the, the, the novel... Because of where the where the last few scenes were, the goat was eating mountain grasses, and he used mountain grasses a number of times. And I'm thinking, actually, I don't know what mountain grasses look <laughs> like, or what's yeah, you know, what's what's that? It's just too generic. And somebody said that in one yeah. of the reviews, generic. Yep. And there was a sense, and that's it's a nondescript you, landscape. Yeah, it's a nondescript landscape, and it's and, and again, that's probably a deliberate choice because he is trying to. Produce a dreamy yeah. world, but yeah. maybe he went too far. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try and find this one. And it's, I think, here we go. and yeah. I think to strengthen the, um, sorry to cut you off, Luke, but yeah, no, uh, to strengthen the idea of a dreamlike world, why then introduce the complex morality play of uh, of the ethnic cleansing? Yeah, if you had gotten rid of that, yeah, I think that you know, again, I'm, I'm this backtracking. Is, to this what is I where said, I think the, the the sort of preachiness or the the sense yeah. I was getting of of it. Is that um, he felt like he wanted a theme in there? Yeah, he, that was theme. A, another theme. Yeah, um, and it, the combination didn't quite work. Anyway, go for it, Luke. Yep. Just as, just as they were entering the Saxon villages, all these different descriptions of everything around. But one of them I just found was so vague. It was um, at one point startled by a particularly strong assault. Axel had turned to see, suspended from the eaves of a hut, a dark object whose shape changed before his eyes as the colony of flies perched on it dispersed. Object shape, there was nothing. That was yeah. it. That's it. I don't know what shape it was. It could have been a dead something. Could have been nothing. But it wasn't just that description. Obviously, it's that just keeps happening in other mm. things. But there were some other things that were very, very, um, the, the, very the, strong. Like you the know, hawthorn tree. 
Yeah. Early on in the, yeah, and that, that, that period there, that, that, that scene there, that was actually quite specific, mm. yep. very grounded. And, uh, but even but all the sentences around it, like it's got, you know, da- cow, dogs, cows and donkeys under no one's supervision, that's quite solid. Yeah. But this one sentence where just blank, mm. you're missing something. And, and to me, it seems like the author wants to draw, um, he only cares about specific things. Mm. He cares about telling a very specific story and the things that are unimportant to that story, he just doesn't but bother. I don't, well, I don't know why they're in there is the main thing because it yeah. doesn't really add anything. It doesn't take anything. He just sits it's there an and makes thing you think. To do, what yeah. was it? <laughs> well, I suppose what we can really say is that he made choices yeah. that trip up some readers. That, yeah. that trip up readers and may not have been the best choices, but he wasn't aware of that. And you now mm. that's true of all of us. That you know, we uh, we uh, we're not we're not perfect mm. all the time. No, we true. we write, you know, mm. and. Uh, um, we've got to make mistakes, and just because he's won a Booker Prize doesn't necessarily mean everything that he writes will be perfect. Yeah, um, he's got to have his off days. Mm-hmm. I think right. this was one of them. Final comments, Doctor Living. I think I just made it. I think you just made it too. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, <laughs> um, thank you for uh, listening to us. Uh, do a different style of podcast this time. Definitely a bit more in-depth, breaking down a topic. And uh, hopefully you found it interesting or educational. Or if you didn't, then I'm sorry. But in case you I'll did... next time. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, send me an email and be like, you're fantastic and your guest is all right, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, Dr. Livings, for coming along to the Thanks podcast. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, Where can people great find your work or what have you got coming up? Uh the uh, well, I, probably the best places to to see anything is on my uh, as my my blog, or, which is uh, project which is t h e a w e n p r o g e c t dot blogs blogspot dot com dot au. There you so, go. Uh, um, and I'm still blogging about. Um, what we talked about last time, which is my That's Wales right. trip. I'm still uh, updating, uh, um, updating all the information about that. Yep. So if you want detailed information, go there, definitely. It's definitely yep. worth checking out. That Luke. Pro- project with a G or a J? J. J. Did I, I say G? Did yep. I say G? You said G. All right, that's did right. I? Oh. Yeah. Sorry I saw that, that and I was Just like, to make sure. Oh, I, I wonder why you gave me a funny look. But it was like, <laughs> I had to spell it out to just make sure. Was right. <laughs> J. Like, project. Project. Um, yeah, as usual, or actually, no, you haven't heard from me for a while anyway, so um, you can find me at The Soul Shard Chronicles, or tweeting also at The Soul Shard Chronicles, no, The Soul Shard, that's right. So, Fantastic. Yeah. Anything particular you want to tease you got coming out, or are you just going to leave us hanging? Uh, probably hanging for the moment. All I'm right. Still, still trying to work on a nice review, that should be interesting, but um, Ooh. Ooh, see how yes, that goes. Yes. All Otherwise, right. Otherwise, I'm working on my new new fantasy series still. Fantastic. Well, in case you didn't tune us all out when we said we didn't really love the uh, new Star Wars uh, movie, I hope uh, I hope that you continue listening. Um, you can find The Morning Bell, themorningbell.net. Be aware that the site is going under some maintenance. Hopefully, it, hopefully it's going to come out looking spiffy and got some new photos, maybe. And yeah, just like a general redesign, we hope you like it. Uh, as to me, you can find me um, at the Pen of Joel on Twitter or thepenofjoel.com. I'm putting out a sword and sorcery novella pretty soon. Yes, I claim I'm a sword and sorcery writer that hasn't put anything out in that genre. So <laughs> it's all been crime so far. But hopefully you get to read it and uh, hopefully you get to like it. If not, don't tell me about it. 
<laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, and we hope to see you on the next podcast. Thank you.